Hello, colleagues. Welcome to the Social Work 864 podcast, Policy Analysis Actualized. This podcast is all about policy analysis and practice. We will be talking with various leaders in the policy arena about strategies for effective social policy design, advocacy, implementation, and evaluation. With us today is Dr. Brad Forenza. Welcome, Dr. Forenza, and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me to join you, Dr. Escobar Ratliff, and hello to the University of Kentucky and your wonderful students. Thank you. So, Dr. Forenza, let me give you a little context for our discussion. This class is Advanced Policy for Social Work Practice and is one of the foundational courses of our Doctor of Social Work program. Our goal for this class is for DSW students to explore the cyclical relationship between social problems, practice, and public policies through a deeper examination of the various approaches to policy analysis and the interdisciplinary efforts of the process at all levels, federal, state, and local. We are in the first week of our course and students have been reading about the purpose of policy analysis, conceptualizing social workers as policy actors in the 21st century and social ethics approach to social problems. Today, we are wanting to have a deeper conversation about policy and social work practice. I wanted to begin our podcast series with you for many reasons. Your experience with the New Jersey legislature, your extensive policy and research experience, and your most recent column, A Bird's Eye View, Exploring Macro Trends with the New Social Worker. Thank you for joining me today to share your knowledge and expertise. Let's start with introductions. Would you please share with our students who you are, a bit about your career path, and your perspective on the importance of policy and social work practice? I would be honored to, Dr. Escobar Ratliff. Thank you for the opening. I would say that similar to most of your students, I assume I've always been a helper. I grew up wanting to help people and do well for my community. I grew up in part with depression era grandparents, both maternal and paternal, who introduced me to the importance of contributing to your community. No contribution is insignificant. As a undergraduate student, I studied communications and couldn't divorce myself from my helping tendencies. I was involved with volunteerism and campus advocacy to some extent and wanted to pursue an MSW. And like many students, including the students I have the privilege of teaching, I assumed that I would be pursuing that licensed clinical social worker route, having my own private practice, hanging a shingle out and calling myself Brad Forenza LCSW. I had a placement my first year in the field that bridge the worlds of micro and meso practice, not quite macro, but I had some programming responsibilities, some group facilitation, and things were happening in the world that were leading me to believe that maybe I wanted to be more involved in that meso world as opposed to the micro world. So that summer, I applied for internships that were more macro oriented, broader than a clinical setting. I was privileged to get one in a congressional office 
And subsequent to that, my second year field placement was a more meso to macro one, still dealing with the same population, young people who happen to be in a foster care placement. After pursuing my MSW, it was a natural progression to work in policy. So how does one work in policy? Well, so much of politics is derived based on where you live. So I sent my resume out to local legislators, assembly people, state senators, local congressperson, as well as county departments of health and human services. Eventually something stuck it took me a while and there was some sadness after earning the degree and then having to wait a couple months for employment to come through. And when it came through, I was pleasantly surprised to have been offered a position in the office of a state assembly person. That's the equivalent of a state Congress person or a federal Congress person rather. So my responsibilities in that office were broad. I wasn't just working on human service policy as I had done a summer before as an intern in a larger federal congressional office. Instead, my responsibilities covered everything from health and human services to the state appropriations process to working with constituents and doing that micro-oriented work, helping them to keep the lights on and so on. But it also pertained to the remediation of brownfield sites. It pertained to parks in urban spaces in New Jersey, my state. So I was very pleased to have broad exposure to the policy arena. And that ultimately springboarded my academic trajectory, which is more macro-oriented. That's great. Those are, those are wonderful experiences. Um, and I, you know, that is just such a, a unique way to, to seek uh, macro-level work. I would have never thought to email my resume or to, to all those different bodies in attempts to find a position that's were you coached to do something like that or is that just I, I that's something I would have thought of <laughs> and it's been a while I won't share how long it's been <laughs> but I think I'm making it sound more simple than it actually was but I do remember the timeline pretty clearly I graduated in May, I was offered the job in July, and then started shortly thereafter. The distance between May and July felt like years because I wanted to make money, get moving with life, start paying off loans, things of that nature. Um, so in hindsight, I might be just giving you the high points. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you my experience the summer before, which was rooted in a congressional office, a United States Senator's office. Mm -hmm. Those offices are bigger. There are not departments, they're not big enough to have departments within a congressional office, but you have teams working on specific issues. In a state representative's office, at least in my state, that's not the case. Those district level offices the teams that are working out of them are dealing with all different types of policies and constituent 
issues. There's not enough person power to break yourselves out into teams and say, this person deals with judicial issues, this person deals with education, this person deals with public safety, and Brad deals with health and human services. Um, I was the policy person in that office, so I dealt with it all. I didn't realize how much I would be dealing with when I was a newly minted MSW graduate stepping into that role, but I was pretty quickly grateful for it because I liked the diversity of what I was doing. And think about this. Policy touches everything. So I remember one of my first assignments being a public employee pension and benefits reform committee assignment. It sounds very nuanced and deep in the weeds of policy, but when you're talking about public employee pension and benefits or anyone's pension and benefits, it's not framed as a social welfare issue, mm -hmm. but it has direct ramifications for overall well-being. When you consider a tried and trusted social program like old age insurance, one component of the broader Social Security Act, and the ways in which seniors are least likely to live in poverty when compared to other age demographics, age groups, it's all attributed to OAI and the guaranteed income that 98% of Americans get from that program. When you're talking about a public employee pension and benefits reform committee, the reform word is in there because reforming public employee pension and benefits is assumed to be in the best interest of taxpayers. And that's coupled with the, the harm or benefit, depending on what your perspective is, done to public employees mm -hmm. and their overall well-being. Absolutely. So I learned over time that issues like that, even though they're not framed as social work issues, human service issues, they often relate. Social policy cuts itself in a lot of directions. If you're talking about brownfield development or the remediation of lead-based paint from public housing, they're wonky, they're geeky. Your students who are wired like me probably like processing through the social justice aspects of those issues. But at the same time, they're not as enticing or glamorous as clinical work or a very obvious social policy like old age insurance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And you're talking with you about, about this experience and in the um, public employee pension benefits and the connectivity to overall well-being, overall social welfare, really kind of leads into to my next question. In, in these earlier, in this early module, our students are really looking at um, exploring value neutrality, value relevance, critical thinking, and professional impartiality. Uh, Caputo, who's our primary author, he talks about social workers in the policy arena and the straddling and trying to find common ground between a more positivist, very um, absolute finite picture of what's happening to a, a postmodern where we're thinking about more ramifications um, of, of different marginalized groups and different uh, uh, realities that people experience. So can you share with us 
how you have navigated or continue to navigate these issues in your work with policy. Sure. I'll begin by saying that I am a post-positivist person. I do believe that there are many realities. I also tell my students that data don't lie. So when we're given statistics, concrete data to make inferences from, we assume that that data is based in fact. But the inferences that we make or the deeper dive that we choose to take into the data, that's where the notion of many realities kind of kicks in. So we're in a very unprecedented moment in history. I did a special topics unit with my students at the beginning of the semester pertaining to um, the killing of unarmed black Americans by police officers. It's been said that Caucasian people, white people have been killed at the hands of police officers more substantially than black Americans. And when one pulls that data, when one takes a look at that data in raw numbers, that's true. And then when one dives deeper, when one slices up those statistics by demographic group, we can see that proportionally black Americans, Hispanic Americans are killed with much greater frequency within group. So there are many different ways to look at the data and it behooves all of us to take that deeper dive. Come to whatever conclusion you want, make whatever inference you want, but do yourself the favor and the courtesy of taking the deeper dive. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I may circle back to that. So um, sure. in, in, in macro practice, and you, you talked about this a little bit um, when you were talking about um, all the different hats you wore, uh, especially in earlier on when you had that. Um, that and I'm no one special. I just happened to have that career arc, but I promise you, I'm no one special. <laughs> well, the well, and I think everybody is someone special. So um, yes, true that. Um, but the having those different hats, and and similar to what we were just talking about with data, you know, you have different stakeholders that are involved in in policy work um, and in macro practice. It's very interdisciplinary. So, you know, your illustration of the data around African American, uh, African Americans dying at the hands of white police officers and how you slice and dive into that data very much can be impacted by who's requesting the data and who is asking for that deeper dive, which then goes into those different realities, as you said. The same with um, any, any whether you're doing policy development or evaluating policies. So with the experiences you've had, not just at the congressional offices, but with the research that you have done with the different stakeholders involved in the research that you've done, can you talk with us about 
your experience with these interdisciplinary teams, how you navigate those conflicting perspectives, and perhaps some hidden agendas that come into play with that. Okay, I can certainly try. Thank you for the question. So how do I work with interdisciplinary teams and how do we make our inferences, look at data and make our inferences? I can tell you that back when I was a doctoral student, I remember working on a grant uh, that employed me to evaluate a program. And in evaluating this program, the data suggested that knowledge gain from a certain training in the human services didn't sustain with time. So while professionals, human service professionals, demonstrated knowledge gain immediately after the training, the benefits of that training didn't sustain for too long after they encountered training. So, okay, how do you communicate this? And I wish I could say the total picture was communicated. Um, it wasn't communicated in its entirety. The knowledge gain, of course, was communicated because that's what the training program wanted to show about themselves, that they were worth their salt and their utility. And I tend to think, by the way, for what it's worth, that they were worth their salt and utility. They were providing a training that no one else was. The catch, again, is that the benefits didn't sustain. So that conversation that write-up, that evaluation, wound up being about the need for subsequent training. Mm -hmm. So that training for this new cadre of human service professionals rooted in one area of social work practice, it wasn't locked into time. It wasn't just cross-sectional, here you are, here's a half-day training, good luck to you. Mm -hmm. In fact, we were able to spin our results in a way that was beneficial for social work, human service professionals, and the clients that they serve in making an argument for sustained training through time, not just when someone was entering this specific realm of practice. Mm -hmm. That's really, so, so it's helping to frame perhaps the, um, yeah. you know, the stakeholders, not initial purpose, but frame it in how it benefits them. Yeah, I think you said just a moment ago, Dr. Escobar Ratliff, that how we frame things is very important. You said that uh, in a more nuanced way, but it's, it's true. So it would be just as easy if someone wasn't human service minded or didn't believe in the utility of what these people were trying to do. It would be very easy to say, oh, the benefits don't sustain let's can this and save the government some money in the process. But my framing, the team that I was working with, is just wired to value those services and supports. The same is true for a project Head Start, let's say. Depends what administration is evaluating Head Start. You tend to get maybe not different data, but different ways of interpreting the data. So we see with Head Start that the data suggests it's a very useful early education, early intervention program. Certainly it provides a huge social good in the form of the necessary support of childcare mm -hmm. 
However, the educational benefits don't sustain beyond third grade, I believe is what the year is. However, you, you don't want to scrap a whole program if the benefits aren't sustaining because it still is providing many, many social goods. So depending on who's conducting the analysis and how they view Head Start and how they view human services and what they believe the role of government should be or the scope of government, that will determine the ways in which Head Start is tweaked or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, I, I love that example. Thank you. Um, one of the things that I've talked with students about in, in other classes and, and, and similar is that as I shared with you, these are our DSW students who are mostly practitioners. Some, some are involved in policy arena, but as a practitioner, even if I'm not directly involved in the arena of making and developing or evaluating policy, to be able to critically think through what you just talked about of if somebody is perhaps pushing an agenda a certain direction, because of their, how they are understanding or the inferences of the data to be able to critically think through and challenge and say, yes, okay, so maybe our benefits aren't sustained. I think of the number of times in my career where uh, in a, as a clinician, we called it the spray and pray method, uh -huh. um, that you would spray people with this knowledge, this new program, this new evidence-based practice um, and, and pray that it's it stuck and it was yeah. great effective in the beginning but the sustainability wasn't yeah and policy is hypothesis whether we like to own that or not it is a lot of guesswork we have an educated assumption as to the ways in which intervention x will prove useful Mm -hmm. But we can't say for certain that intervention X will be impactful in the way in which we intend for it to be mm -hmm. until we put the pedal to the metal and start implementing that program or service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I talk a lot with my students about the ways in which populations are socially constructed in the mm -hmm. eyes of policymakers. So Schneider and Ingram wrote an article, I think in the 90s, it's one of my go-to articles and it says that groups can have strong or weak political power and groups can be perceived positively or negatively in the eyes of the public. So when you consider a advantaged group like older adults, the group I mentioned earlier, they have strong political power, their butts vote and they vote in large quantities and often. Mm -hmm. They're also perceived to have paid their due to society, so they have a favorable rapport. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't like old people? Mm -hmm. As such, the benefits, more or less, that policymakers have traditionally afforded to them are institutional. OAI, 98% of Americans get it. And whether you are Oprah Winfrey or Bill Gates, you benefit from OAI just the same as your figurative Uncle Harry, who might be down on his luck perpetually. Mm -hmm. So long as you meet the age requirements, you will benefit from that program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The opposite is true for other 
tried and trusted social work populations mm -hmm. that we serve. So groups that have weak political power and maybe are perceived less well by society, groups that social workers have to advocate on behalf of as well as with in the spirit of empowerment, your people who happen to have substance use issues, people historically who have had chronic and persistent mental illness, and also historically, since this is a policy class, you're voluntarily, air quotes around voluntarily, single women. Those groups have traditionally differed from the ways in which society views people with physical disabilities, mm -hmm. women who are involuntarily single through being widowed or what have you. Society has afforded different benefits to them mm -hmm. because they're viewed more favorably for whatever historical mm -hmm. reasons. But going back to that group that has weak political power and a less positive rapport, that, those are the groups that often have means tested programs mm -hmm. and services that they qualify for. So you have to really demonstrate need, mm -hmm. often income eligibility, but maybe rooted in some other circumstance. Society, through its policymakers, through its elected officials, not necessarily your students or social workers in general, but society has historically had less sympathy for those populations mm -hmm. that are assumed to be somehow culpable of the circumstances they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Hopefully the needle's moving on these populations as society evolves. This all comes back to policy as hypothesis and policy as incremental. So the ways in which our policies treat people with substance use now, the framing around that population is different. Mm -hmm. and probably that's attributed to the fact that substance use cuts across different demographics in a way that perceptually, if not in reality, it didn't always seem to cut across demographics. The same case could be made for people who happen to have chronic and persistent mental illness, wherein they may historically have been tucked away in an institution or a state hospital. That's not the case now. We believe that people should be cared for in the least restrictive environments. They're more visible. When you know better, you do better. Perceptions of those populations have changed with time. And this backs into policy as hypothesis. Policy is a lot of guesswork. Even if those populations still primarily are afforded means-tested programs that tend to be more stigmatized than a program like OAI or a veteran's benefit. Veterans are also uh, advantaged group perceived to have paid their dues to society. Hopefully the trends around those politically weaker and less well-perceived populations are changing, which will also change the ways in which policy treats them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Forenza. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today about policy and social work practice. Um, any, uh, are there any final thoughts or words of wisdom that you might want to offer uh, you know, upcoming doctoral students, I, I surprised Boy. you. Boy, <laughs> we're, we're wrapping already. It went so quick. 
I will say a couple things. Number one, I want to just circle back to that public employee pension and benefits reform, my first official assignment as a newly minted MSW working in a policy arena. I didn't know what I was stepping into, so I understood it theoretically, but as your students will experience or have experienced, we do a lot of theoretical work in academia. When one sets foot into a professional environment, be it policy oriented or direct practice oriented, you experience things differently. So those people, you know, those were a lot of upset public employees and in a policy role, they were there with pitchforks, you know, metaphorical pitchforks, but you get what I mean. And understandably so. Uh, I didn't anticipate that. And in policy, there are no winners and losers, just trade-offs. And I was not an elected official, so that was my professional assignment. I had nothing to do with voting on those issues or what the outcomes looked like. Um, but I certainly didn't know what I was stepping foot into, but learned with time, like a lot of professional practice, whether it's macro, micro, or otherwise. The other thing I'll say is that while I was concrete in my desire to apply for those policy professions after obtaining the MSW, I will say that policy practice encompasses micro practice. If you're an LCSW, which I wanted to be at one point, and the allure of the degree is that all roads can lead to licensure if we pursue the supervision and all that stuff. While I did not pursue that avenue, the private practitioner still has to be in tune with what Medicaid is going to pay them. Mm -hmm. the, program manager still needs to be in tune with how to communicate the agency's mission out to the community and make the community aware of what programs and services they're offering. Mm -hmm. The coalition member needs to be mindful of the other human service organizations who are part of the figurative coalition, whether it's addressing substance use or some other issue to see where their agency might have gaps and where they might benefit from partnering with other like-minded human service agencies. The problem in so much of life, this is my personal editorial, is that we sometimes lose sight of the bigger picture, mm -hmm. the humanity within us, but also the profession's desire to alleviate or address issues of well-being for the clients that we serve. Mm -hmm. If we're territorial as agency stakeholders, agency employees, and we don't want to collaborate with those other agencies, or we don't want to apply for a grant to potentially implement a new program or service, that's not the most beneficial for our clients. So whether one is a micro practitioner, a macro practitioner, or something in between, it behooves all of us to keep the best interests of clients in mind and policy touches all of it absolutely absolutely um, the students who have had me for other classes hear me beat the drum of an integrative practice lens constantly um, and and with the shiftings that we have experienced um, of how 
clinical work is reimbursed, like you're talking about with Medicaid and Medicare. And even if you look at COVID, when COVID hit and not able to provide services, telehealth for Medicare clients, um, and that the advocacy that went behind that and getting that changed, um, because initially you weren't, you couldn't, um, and we wow. finally got it approved um, with much, much advocacy and exceptions were made and exemptions were quickly put into place to fill that gap. But that's exactly wow. what you're talking about, um, yeah. that we, we have the pulse and a responsibility as clinicians or case managers or program directors to see those gaps and, yeah. and, and advocate for them. You're the figurative you, the clinical social worker's bottom line is affected by those policies, not just in times of pandemic, but in regular life too. In New Jersey, there was a similar advocacy initiative among social workers and clinical psychologists and other helping professionals uh, to get payments for telehealth, mm-hmm. parity in telehealth. And I think that the the way the rules look now is that there's no copay for telehealth in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, that's the clinician's bottom line. And right. think about the increased access that something like telehealth can facilitate. That's a great, great, great collaborative effort of those of us who are macro-minded and micro oriented Mm -hmm. to just increase access for all of our consumers. Potentially, some haven't sought services before due to machismo or whatever cultural barrier or physical barrier might exist Mm -hmm. between the consumer and the agency. Congratulations to you, Professor, and others like you for taking up this charge. Thank you. Thank you very much. And again, I really appreciate this conversation. I know that it's going to help our students and they're deepening deepening their understanding of, of policy analysis. Uh, and, and students who are listening, I want to invite you to follow Dr. Ferenz's column on the, in the New Social Worker and his podcast, Dr. Brad's super awesome social polycast, which you can find it on Spotify, Google, and Apple. So Dr. Frenza, thank you again for your time today. Very much appreciated. Thank you again for inviting me here. It's an honor and a privilege. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Kentucky College of Social Work. Fully online or face-to-face, leading social work education for over 80 years. Find out more about the UK College of Social Work online at socialwork.uky.edu.